Welcome to the Voices of Women Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tatiana Resnik, a practicing physician and a certified life coach. You will hear about inspirational journeys and practical tips from amazing women physician experts, as well as effective coaching tools and steps to joyful success. Welcome everyone to this episode of Voices of Women Physicians podcast. Today, I am happy to introduce to you our special guest, Dr. Sarah Neitzel. Hi. Hi, you're welcome. So happy to have you here today on our podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. I actually am a podiatrist. I'm a podiatric surgeon, so I do like foot and ankle surgery. And I grew up in California. And then I went out to Chicago for all my training and medical school and residency. And then I came back to the Pacific Northwest. And I love it. I'm kind of over on like the west side of the Seattle area. So like more towards the mountains, which is beautiful. And I have a practice there. A couple of years ago, I started a medical nail spa. And I've just gotten really into the business side of it. So I realized what I really like is actually helping doctors get the business side of private practice going because I really want doctors to feel like private practice is an option. And I feel like right now we just tend to graduate and go right into more of the larger corporate medicine situations. And that's just not a good fit for everybody. So I'm excited. I get to talk to people all day about how private practice isn't dead and all the things we can do to make it better. And it's just been a really cool situation. So I love it. It is so awesome. Thank you for doing it. So many people Yeah, well, we get like no business training at all. So it's helpful. Absolutely. So we will have two parts of our interview. One part will be about mindset, about everything, very important parts which needed from us and what we can do to make it successful. And other part will be about business, about specific practical tips and all the details how to make it work. So let's start with mindset part. So when you think about decision to go into private practice and you have this fear of leaving secure income to regain your freedom of time, let's talk about this a little. Yeah, I think that the hard part about private practice is most people get really scared about the fact that they are not going to have that secure income anymore right? You're used to having a larger employer that's paying you during residency. And so it's an easy next step to go into more of a corporation or a larger healthcare system. But what you lose is you lose your freedom of time. And for women, especially, they typically will lose time with their family and their kids are young at that age. And like, you don't get that time back. So I think the big decision factor for most people for private practice is that they realize they need their time back. And that's the nice part about private practice is you get to make your own hours. Literally, the only person that is going to determine when you're working, when you're not. Now you do have to make it financially successful. And that is where it is helpful to talk with other people who have private practices. And you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like a lot of us have done this really successfully for a while. So you can make it whatever you want. For me personally, I've gotten my time back compared to residency, but I only work three days a week in my office. I work really long days, three days a week, but I found that I did better with working from eight or nine in the morning until seven or eight at night and just rocking through a whole day. And then I take an extra two days off a week, but I can't do like a half day real well. That just didn't work for me. So you got to get to know those limitations, how much time you want to have. Is it easy for you to have a half day or do you need a whole day off to really feel refreshed? And I think that's one of the really cool things about private practice. So it's usually the big driver for it. The part we have to get over is like, okay, how do we make this so that your income is far surpassing your dreams, basically? How do we do that? 
It's very important. Yes, and it's great that we can tailor our time to our preferences, to our family situation, and actually make our own schedule. It's the best part. Yes, I got some people that work 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. so they can be there for their kids' pickup every day. Great. You do you. That sounds awesome. And it's not like anybody's going to come in and complain about it. So patients will come in when your office is open. I think that's a really neat part about it. Oh, yes. And let's talk about challenges specific for women in the private practice. So I think there's just general challenges for private practice around the business side of things, right? That goes for men and women. But I think particularly women and some of the challenges are also a little bit of your superpower at the same time. So one of the challenges that's big is just fear of missing out on family time, right? And unfortunately, if you go into private practice with the mindset that you're going to work the exact same hours in the same volume as you maybe were working before in residency or in a larger healthcare system, you are going to miss a lot of time with family. And I think there's a lot of guilt with that too. Now, this being said, I am not a parent myself, but I work with a ton of women and have colleagues who are all in this situation. They just beat themselves up regularly. And I think that one of the ways that a lot of them get through that is focusing more on quality of time with their kids as opposed to just quantity. I have one really great friend of mine that just amazing woman. She hardly gets stressed about anything. I just would emulate her every chance I get if I could. But she would work and she would go from eight in the morning until about three or four in the afternoon. And then she would go home with her kids and she designated the hours of 5 p.m. until 9 p.m. with them every day. And it was their time. And she just committed to doing her charting and stuff after they went to bed. And that worked for her. The kids were doing a lot better because they were getting her full attention for a few hours as opposed to scattered attention, like how we all get with, oh, we've got to do all these other things at the same time. And your mind is still at work or it's at all the other things you've got going. So I think quality time was a really cool concept. But again, you could really schedule this so that you can still do certain things with your family. And I think it allows you to be able to do that. So women do, I think, especially suffer with fear of missing out when their kids are little. The other thing that I notice is as a woman, we tend to have to like people, please. Like we're really good at having a real strong desire to just make everybody happy. Oh, yes. It's so common. Right? Like everybody accept yourself. And I think that's such a hard thing to overcome, but it really is about making sure that you're standing in your worth too. Your time is worth something. And I'm all for making sure that you're serving patients to the best of your ability, but you don't want to be completely giving up your time and your life with your family just to try to constantly be accommodating stuff for work. And unfortunately, that does usually involve patients and patient care. So I think prioritizing that is pretty important. But again, sometimes these are actually kind of our superpower when it comes to practice. So it's like a double-edged sword. Yes, you mentioned superpowers of women in the private practice. Let's talk a little more about those. What do you think, Saya? I think that desire to please everybody, honestly, it tends to make us really, really relatable for patients. And I have a lot of patients that tell me that they prefer to have female physicians. I don't know if that is just we listen a little better or we're just a little more patient maybe, but the relatability for patients for female doctors is a big part of the reason a lot of women doctors are just really, really successful. So on one hand, yes, you can have a desire to please people and have that be detrimental to you. And on the other hand, it's like you can turn that into being super relatable for patients and having that be really beneficial for you and the patient. 
Oh, yes. What else? Well, I think that women tend to be a lot more in tune with their office staff and the general mood in the office, right? Which sometimes can be really frustrating. But other times, I think you catch problems or potential problems and potential conflicts and challenges a lot sooner. You're not usually having to be told that there's a problem between two employees or that there's somebody who's distracted by something outside of work. Like we're pretty in tune to that. And generally, the earlier you can address that stuff, the better. And then the other thing that I really appreciate for the female clients that I work with is they are just so much more willing to ask for help. So much more willing to ask for help. I think it goes back to the old adage, like women are more likely to ask for directions. Oh yes, it's the same same thing. I think asking for help is so important because we went to med school. We are really good at the patient diagnosing and the treatment plans and anything involving medicine. But like, I don't know squat about accounting. I don't want to know about accounting. Like I didn't go to school for that. However, I have a CPA who went to school for that and he's really good at it. And so I think being more willing to ask for help and accept help, you can build a better team around you, which then makes it so your private practice is something you actually enjoy. You're seeing patients, you're doing the stuff you were supposed to do. And you're not running around trying to do all of the extra little things yourself. You're not doing your own bookkeeping. You're not doing your own marketing. When you're ready to advance your practice past that point, and you're ready to just do the things that you were trained to do, that's like when you've arrived. You're going to build that team and that practice is going to be super successful. (laughs) Yes, thank you. And let's talk a little more about building your team. What helps? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of self-reflection that has to happen there, right? So recognizing where your strengths and weaknesses are. So like I said, I don't do accounting. When I used to try to do my taxes back when it was super easy, I mean, it always meant something got thrown across the room. I hate everything about doing my taxes. I don't even want to look at a tax form. I have like a special aversion to it, which is funny because my mother's a bookkeeper. So you would think I would be okay with it. And I'm not. So that's something that's like, I know that I don't even want to deal with that, let alone not being good at it. Then there's the reflecting on, I'm pretty good at marketing strategies. I recognize that I have a good mind for it, but I also don't have the time or the knowledge base and training to be able to do that as effectively as somebody else who this is literally what they do all the time. So I think getting your financial team in order, getting your CPA, hopefully you have somebody on like a healthcare banking team that you work with at your bank, got a financial planner. Those are important people on the finance side. Your marketing, you definitely want to have somebody else that professional that do your marketing for you. And generally, I recommend that people don't just go with somebody who can build a website. Almost anybody can build a website at this point, but you do need somebody that is working on your SEO, your search engine optimization on the back end of the website website and maybe is running some Google ads or some social media stuff for you. So that stuff takes time. Oh, yes. Right. You know this. It can take up like an exorbitant amount of your day and maybe you get one or two patients out of it. So honestly, it's just easier to pay somebody who's a professional to do this because they know where their time is best utilized, whereas you and I are like shooting in the dark a little bit, right? And then in terms of your staffing, that's a whole different team. That's your in-office working with them daily team. And I have an entire protocol for that that I share with my coaching clients. It's a process to do hiring correctly. But you want to have people that are complementary to you and also contrast your abilities. So a really good example is like the gal that I have as my office manager started with me more as my front desk position. I had an inclination that she had the skills for office management right away, just with her level of organization. But we are opposite of each other. She is really, really good at seeing all of the details 
detailed parts of a problem and the processes for how we're going to get from A to B and B to C and C to D. And like, that's where she lives. And that is like her zone of genius. I don't function well that way. I am the bigger, like visionary person. So I tend to see A to Z and I can be like, okay, help me how to get there. And sometimes I can get lost in the details. If I get too bogged down in that, I will lose track of where we're headed. And she has a little harder time with making sure to keep the larger picture of where we're headed in mind. So in that sense, we very much complement each other and it really helps us to get projects and things done for the office. So I think both hiring people that are their own specialty, that are obviously professionals and that is super important. Don't try to do everything yourself. And then making sure when you're hiring your everyday right-hand team that you're hiring in a way that reflects some of your weaknesses and offloads the duties that you really shouldn't be doing. You should be doing the doctoring. Yes, this is so important, actually. When I coach my clients, I always recommend them that when they hire someone, this person's strength should be where your weaknesses. It's filling out this hole where your weaknesses. It's wonderful. But speaking about hiring the team, where do you normally find right people? Tell us about this process. Yeah, so I started off with doing the whole just like Indeed.com ads, right? Because it's free. Just put it up there. I still think that's actually a really good way to do it because Indeed will allow you to select for certain skill requirements and they've automated the process a lot, which is really great. What I have found is there's a couple of things that have to happen before you really put out your hiring ad, right? Before you start even really looking to hire. You need to be, as the employer, super clear on what it is you're looking for, what job duties you want them to be doing, what are your must-haves, what are your, okay, would be nice if they had this quality, okay, they don't necessarily need to have this training. Like you need your three columns of qualities that you're looking for in this person and how important they are to you. Because if you put your ad out and you just put out looking for medical receptionist, here's the hours you'll be working, here's the hourly wage range, here's just a couple of the things we're going to expect you to do, you're going to get a lot of inquiries, but you're going to be weeding through a lot of inquiries. <laughs> so I think if you're able to really hone in on the qualities you're looking for, right? So self-motivated, highly organized, quick learner, self-starter, there's certain terms you can use even in the ad part of it that I think are really helpful. Make sure you put up your wage range, your expected hours that you're looking to have them work. And we start with that. And actually, most of the clients I work with, they do it the way I used to do it, where you get a resume, you're looking through all the resumes, and then you're bringing people in for in-person interviews. And I have found after working with a friend of mine who she's now the chief operating officer at a large company. So she definitely knows what she's talking about. We were working on a hiring strategy for me because I was literally getting 150 to 200 inquiries on Indeed just for one position. And that's just too much for you to be going through every resume. So what we actually started doing is we started doing a follow-up set of questions through Indeed. So anybody that replied yes, we would just look to see that their resume was up there. And then we would go ahead and click send them the questions, click send them the questions. And it was a pre-done template in Indeed. And the point of the questions is we asked three questions. It really doesn't matter what you ask, to be honest. The point of the questions is that we had directions how to send us their responses to those questions. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's literally just a test. Of, Can you read directions and follow them? And you would be shocked. Like everybody is so shocked every time they start using this process because it goes from 100 applicants down to like 10. You knock out 90% of the people that just hit apply, hit apply. Because on Indeed, it's super easy for people to just apply to a job and it uploads their resume. Like there really isn't any actual effort that they're having to put into applying for this job. So this is a way to show their seriousness. Can they follow directions? And of the ones that actually do respond, I think the majority of them honestly just hit reply on Indeed. And that's also not what we're asking them to do. So it shrinks it down further. Then we do a 
phone interview and we do kind of a surprise phone interview so that we can see how they are on the phone, especially if it's for somebody that is going to be handling our phones. I want to know how they're going to speak to people, how they're going to handle random phone calls. And we give them a couple of scenarios while we're on that call just to see what they do and how they handle it. We have had quite a few people that we have not pursued after the phone interview, but usually they go pretty well, to be honest. And by the time we read through their resume, we've looked at their responses to the questions, we've looked at their phone interview responses, we bring in two or three people. That's usually all we have left to interview. And honestly, we would hire any of them. By the time they come in for their in-person interview, I'm just checking to make sure that they're not surprising us by really actually being completely disorganized and somebody was doing it for them, right? That would be bad. That has not happened yet, but I'm always wary of that possibly happening. It's a possibility. Right? But typically, if they've gone through all of that process, they're pretty serious about it. So we don't get a lot of no-shows for interviews, which is a big problem for people. And we really just want to see how well their personality is going to mesh with the rest of the office. I know all of my employees really well. I know they get along with me. So if this is somebody that I get that really good vibe about, that they're going to be a really good addition, they're going to get along with everybody. That's really what I'm looking for at the in-person interview. So we go through a series of questions, but other than a few that we kind of care about how they're answering, it's more just trying to get to know them. And I'll say we don't have, like we really don't. People leave because we've got a lot of military families in our area. So a lot of times when people get reassigned or restationed, they'll move. But for the most part, we keep employees like two, three, four years. And that's not common in medicine, apparently. How many employees do you have currently? Technically right now I have six. And I try to keep staffing low. Everybody's cross-trained. So at no point with anybody being sick or out, should we be having to close the office? It's not going to be a fun day. I recognize that. And I'll usually buy everybody coffee if that's what we're doing. But it's at least so that everybody's trained and could be other jobs and we can all pivot a little bit to help. And it makes the practice still run smooth that day. We're always sitting there at the end of the day if somebody's sick, like, oh, it really wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. It's great. And we also have a really good team where they all get along really well. So I don't have to, neither does my office manager. Like we just don't have to deal with all of the drama and the cattiness. We don't hire people that are into that. And it's great. It's a good team. I just want to ask, how do you organize office dynamics to make sure that everybody's working harmoniously with each other? But yes, hiring right, it's a main step. Hiring right is huge. I think we basically have like one person per position. So we have a front desk. We have a back office MA. I have a nail technician. We have another doctor. I'm not doing multiple people per position, but if and when we do, because I am planning on hiring quite a few docs, if and when we do bring in another front desk or another MA, we are going to make sure to really carefully delineate out who is doing what. So there is no overlap. The only time you're doing that other person's duties is literally if they're not there. This is important, actually. This is really helpful. Yeah, because otherwise everybody gets confused. Oh, I thought they did that. Oh, I thought that was in their job description. And the more clear you can be about delineating duties, the better off you're going to be. A lot less confusion. Yes. And if you want to tell us a little bit about your nail spa. Oh, yeah, sure. So I started a nail spa back in 2020 when we moved into the new office space. So I built out a new office space in 2020, which hindsight was not the time to build. It was really hard to do a build out during that. But we'd already started the process and then COVID hit. So I figured just double down and do it. It doesn't stop you. I mean, it was already happening, so might as well make the best of it. But the nail spa, actually, as a podiatrist, I have a whole lot of people that are high risk that really shouldn't be getting pedicures and manicures done because if mistakes are made and there's not a lot of regulation in that industry, as I found out, then I'm seeing a lot of people with infections, ingrown nails. The other one was I was seeing all of these people with toenail fungus from nail spas. It's a really big issue because there's really just not an industry-wide cleaning standard necessarily. 
properly. They're kind of supposed to do certain things, but I think there's a lot of cutting corners and a lot of things that I've seen just when I was going out doing my work to see what all was out there. I was like, this is definitely not getting rid of fungus. So I decided to create a pedicure manicure spa that everything was clean. It was a pretty basic concept. So it was everything is surgically sterilized and autoclaved like we would our surgery tools for the office. So it has its own autoclave. We use the same protocols for our tools that we would in the office. Everything else is like single use. We have antifungal options for things and it has just absolutely exploded. I honestly probably should have built it out bigger than I did because we also made it so that it was an individualized service, right? So we only have two chairs. We have our nail tech. This was partly because I think people also have a level of embarrassment about their toenails, especially if they have really bad ones. So they don't want to sit in a long line of chairs. So we did it where it was very individual and very private. Makes sense. Yeah. And I think people really enjoy that. And I mean, she's crazy booked up at this point. I can't even get in to see her and I need to have my nails done. I think she's booked into like February. It's crazy. The demand has been great. So it's about yes. How did you organize it? So you followed pattern like they normally do in a regular nail salon, but extra clean. Yeah. Once you start opening businesses, it actually is kind of the same steps every time. So I have the private practice. I did all of my own filing for my LLC and setting up my liability insurance. There's just certain things you have to do right? It's kind of a template. So yeah, when it came to the spa, I just made sure to chat with my lawyer, who is another person that you should have on your team, hint, hint. If for nothing else other than like business structuring, right? And when we talked about it, he had concerns about liability crossover between a spa type of a business and a medical practice and whether or not we were going to be able to like keep that separate. And so I had to really set it up as two totally separate businesses. I went through the entire process over again with the spa with the LLC and Department of Revenue and different bank accounts, different liability coverage, different everything, right? Because I had the design idea for the business. It's just, it needed to be completely separate. So different website, it helps your liability. Are they in separate buildings or in the same building? No. So it's in the same building, but I have a rental agreement between my practice and the spa. So between myself and myself with how much rent the spa actually pays. And it's based on square footage to the practice every month. And whether we're renting anything from the practice, practice equipment wise, that's all in the contract. And yeah, there's ways to do it, but it does share the space. And it's nice because it's something that like me only working three days a week. And for a while I was only working four. the spa is working. So it's there bringing income into that space, even if I'm not there, which is great. This is the best part. Yeah. Like it's really, truly functioning on its own, which is how everybody's businesses to get to is like, it should be self-managing and run without you there. That's the goal. This is nice. It's a special nail spot. It's awesome. Thank you so much for coming to this episode. And in the next episode, we will talk in details about all the business aspects of opening a private practice. Yeah, we'll get into that stuff. That'll be good. And I'm going to put in the show notes all details how to contact you so our listeners can easily reach you. That would be great. Yeah, any help anybody needs, let me know. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed it or found it helpful, Please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share it with a friend. Have any topics you'd like covered? Send me an email at joyfulsuccessliving at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram to connect at joyfulsuccessliving. Have an amazing week. See you next time. The Voices of Women Physicians podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not provide any medical, financial, tax, legal, 
or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own well-being, decisions and results. Dr. Resnik is a practicing physician, but Voices of Women Physicians podcast is not reflective of the opinion of her employer. You should always contact professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.